Now, a recent report from the Australian Banking Association has highlighted the remarkable extent to which Australian payment methods have evolved in the last few years. The ABA's Banconet Customer Trends 2023 report revealed mobile wallet transactions have skyrocketed to $93, to $93 billion, sorry, while nearly 99% of bank interactions are now taking place digitally. Also, cards have rapidly replaced cash, with 75% of payments occurring with cards, compared to just 26% in 2007. Now, to tell us more, I'm pleased to say we're joined by ABA CEO Anna Bly. Anna, welcome to the Savings Tip Jar. Great to be here. Thanks for sharing your time with us, Anna. Um, so on sort of what Don was saying just there, um, we've seen recently that the government uh, plans to phase out checks by 2030. Um, so what I wanted to ask you was, um, what sort of demographics are going to have to be most prepared and um, how are banks reacting to this and how are they um, getting ready uh, for, for this sort of change? Um, and sort of off the back of that is... Is cash next? Um, so checks have become um, a very, very small part of our payment system. They currently account for 0.2% of all payments. Um, but for some uh, for some reasons, um, they're still, for some people, quite an important part of the way they do business. So, for example, um, lawyers who are involved um, in helping people do their conveyancing mm -hmm. on the purchase or the sale of a property, um, you know, often use a cheque and put that in a trust account for, you know, to hold the deposit on a house, for example. Um, but it's equally, it's not just in the uh, the broader economy, it's also some of the biggest issuers of cheques are, are still government. Um, there are a number of, I understand, a number of doctors who still receive their payments through Medicare um, via a cheque. Uh, so, as I, you know, there are... Um, now then, so they're the sort of very big uses of checks in terms of volume, um, but I think you know there's probably many people listening to your podcast who have never even seen a checkbook themselves or used a checkbook, um, but they might have got a check um, from their grandma for Christmas. Um, you know, there is a, an older group of Australians who um, who really you know value the use of checks because it helps them um, keep account of you know what their spending has been. They feel like it's a safer method than sending cash in the Christmas card, um, those sorts of things. Um, but the, so I think the challenge for us all is to make sure that we've got um, the right alternatives in place by the time 2030 comes around. Having said that, I should say that our um, colleagues across the ditch in New Zealand um, managed to do this 12 months ago with six months' notice. So. I think Australians with seven years' notice will be able to manage this okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm, so for example, on the um, for older people who might want to use a cheque um, to send to um, a grandchild or they might want to pay a bill with a cheque um, through the mail, um, Australia Post already offers um, a money order uh, product. Uh, you know, there is a good, viable, safe, secure alternative there. Now, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I guess some people overseas regard Australia as a bit behind the times when it comes to, to technology. But I noticed the uh, the ABA report has found that Australians have traditionally been very early adopters of uh, of sort of digital payments, leading the UK, the US, and and many European countries. So, can you explain a little bit about why Australians are such world leading adopters of of new bank tech? Sure. Just before I do, I realised I didn't 
say anything on the second part um, of Harrison's question, which was what were the cash <laughs> monthly risks? Um, yeah, we're certainly sure. seeing a rapid drop in cash. I think cash is here for quite a long time to stay. But, uh, you know, in the last um, 15 years, we've seen cash go. It used to in 20, in 2007. Um, it accounted for 70% of how we paid for goods and services. In 22, it accounts for 13%. So the card, you know, cash might have been king once, but the card is definitely king now, um, or the mobile wallet or the smartwatch. So, uh, you know, that's the change that's happening. Um, yes, I think people might be surprised on the one hand to hear that Australians are very early adopters of financial technology. Um, and I think there is a number of things that account for that. Uh, firstly, the nature of our banking system. So in Australia, as people know, we have four very large banks um, and then we have um, a number of what you might call mid-tier banks like Suncorp, BOQ, Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. Um, and then we have quite a lot of much smaller financial um, banking uh, operators such as credit unions and building societies. Um, what that means, one of the benefits to the country of having those big four banks um, is that uh, they can actually fund um, infrastructure uh, that will facilitate new technology. So um, in Australia, the banks actually funded, they developed and funded FPOS, um, they developed and funded VPay, um, they own those, um, those that back of house kind of machinery, if you like. Um, in the US, uh, the US has 4,500 banks. Wow. Um, they are, you know, so a lot of um, uh, Americans or U.S. citizens, they bank with a bank that might only have one branch, and that's in the town where they were, you know, first started. Um, and, you know, that has its own benefits, and some of them really like that, but it does mean they don't have those big pillars um, in the retail banking sector. They do have big investment banks like the J.P. Morgans, but the banks that, you know, just provide mortgages and savings accounts and those sort of products to ordinary people, um, that they are very, very dispersed. So it's much, much harder for them to come together and collectively fund, you know, payment systems. Um, uh, so FPOS was one of the first of its kind in the world. Um, and it's kind of, I think also, you know, we're a country um, with a relatively small population spread over a very large geographic area. And so, you know, necessity has sometimes been the mother of invention. And uh, Australians as a, a, a people are, you know, willing to experiment. Um, and yes, I think uh, it is interesting for those of your listeners who have travelled overseas, and I know we couldn't do it for a little while in the last five years, but it's not unusual in a country like the US or even Japan where you would think they would be much more high-tech than Australia um, to still have to pay for um, something um, and put your PIN number in. You know, tap and go is not um, an in, not a, um, a facility that is available in many, many, many parts of those countries. So uh, they're quite a way behind where we are. And we've got a very rapid adoption rate on the mobile wallet. Sure. And we'll change gears slightly now. So one thing I've noticed the Australian Banking Association um, has been has been discussing recently is elder financial abuse. Um, so what, what exactly is that? What does it look like in, in practice? Um, and what are banks doing to stop this or at least mitigate this? Uh, well, it's an absolutely terrible, um, crime is what financial elder, elder financial abuse, um, is it basically, um, 
it's the it's the use of a trusted relationship to um, to either you know force people uh, older Australians to hand over um, uh, you know things like their password and their banking details, or you use the trusted relationship um, effectively to trick them out of money. Um, and unfortunately, it's it's almost always a highly trusted relationship. So it's the adult children um, of an older Australian. It's maybe one of their siblings. Uh, it could be the next door neighbour who has been, you know, doing things that appear very friendly, um, like you know, going and doing the grocery shopping for them, um, but at the same time putting their own groceries on the card of the older person who has shared their PIN number with them or, you know, given them their card to shop with. So often it takes a very long time for the older person to realise that they are being sort of ripped off here. Um, it can be much more serious than that. It can be people deliberately, you know, um, forming a relationship through things like, oh, let me help you with that, let me help you with this. And then literally, oh, can you just sign this? And without knowing it, the older person has signed over their entire life savings uh, to somebody. So it, as I said, it ranges from um, family members and it's particularly tragic in those circumstances because as you can imagine, it is very, very hard for someone to accept that their adult son or daughter has been systematically um, abusing them financially. And I think there's probably in some family members, particularly where they're helping to care for an older person. Some people some come to have a sense of entitlement. You know, I'm sort of sacrificing parts of my life to look after mum or dad, and therefore I, I'm owed something. Um, so in terms of what banks can do, um, there are a number of things, well, firstly, that people can do to protect themselves. And, um, uh, you know, some of your listeners may be getting to an age where they need to be thinking about um, you know, if I get to a point where maybe I'm not so good at looking after my own finances, who would I really trust um, to do that for me and to appoint that person as your power of attorney um, at the right time? Um, uh, banks have very sophisticated data analytical capability um, because of, pre predominantly because of tap and go, um, you know, they can see what you're buying and when you're spending and they have huge, you know, data analytics that can, um, you know, go right across every transaction. Mm. And what that means, when they see something unusual, they can flag it. Um, and it's, um, I'm sure you've had in your time or many of your listeners will, um, you know, you've been traveling overseas and, you know, spending um, in a foreign country and you'll get a message from your bank. Mm. Uh, there are transactions on your account occurring in Barcelona. Um, is it, If this is not you, please call your bank. Um, that's because they've noticed suddenly there's this very unusual pattern happening. Um, uh, that's just one example. But when they see, for example, um, you know, somebody whose only income has been, um, you know, sort of the the, um, the age pension, they might be someone who's, you know, has money in an account um, because they've sold a property or something, but their income is very relatively small and that their expenditure, mostly all they spend is a little bit of money on groceries and, a few beers at the pub on Saturday night, and suddenly they've bought, um, you know, a really expensive skiing trip, um, you know, in Europe for five people. They would, they, they can ask questions. They call and make sure. Now, they can be a very good reason. It's perfectly reasonable for grandma to decide to shout the grandkids, um, you know, a big Christmas holiday. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But if banks see something unusual like that, they now have a much better ability to make to, to reach out and say, this is an unusual expenditure. Are you okay? Did you authorise this, et cetera? Um, but there are a range of things that we need um, the government to do and banks have been you know, pushing very hard uh, for, at the moment, there is no national register of powers of attorney. The bank staff are... It, you know, it can be hard to know. There's no way of checking if um, somebody's power of attorney document is um, legitimate, if it's still current, if it's been cancelled. So some of the protections need to be um, increased, I think. We've got more and more Australians um, living longer and longer. Um, and these issues are going to become more and more um, prevalent uh, for more of them. And uh, just, uh, you know, bringing up a, a, another rather um, unpleasant topic, which you touched on briefly earlier, just on scams at the moment um it seems like you know for all our advancements in banking technology uh scams your banking scams seem to be at at an all-time high um and you know you mentioned that how you know banks are, are blocking transactions that they see overseas that they seem unusual for that person but i've heard of a lot of people who've been who've suffered from that lately you know seen had several large transactions made on their account in new york or whatever uh, and uh, the, the bank has been too slow to stop those transactions. And by the time that person uh, brings it up with the bank, uh, they're told it's, it was their fault. So, I mean, what are banks doing to, 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 to stop these, these scams? And, and are they going to try and change their, their way of sort of reimbursing people? Because I see, you know, reports coming out that current rates of reimbursement are only around 2 to 5%, which doesn't seem like much to me. Well, thank you for the question. Uh, and you're right, we are seeing... Um, a rapid um, escalation globally in uh, the incidence of um, scams. Uh, part of this is a consequence globally of more and more people banking in that digital environment. Um, it's not the only thing, though. Uh, we are seeing increasingly sophisticated, globally active criminal gangs who have the capability, because of advances in technology, um, you know, for example, you, I'm sure you've had that message on your phone that says you owe money to the toll company um you know they these gangs can on a weekly basis yeah yeah but they generate that message um and can get it out to millions of phone numbers and for them uh they just know that the more they push out of those messages somebody's going to fall for it and millions of people don't they say oh yeah that's a scam that's stupid get rid of it they only need you know hundreds of people to fall for it not millions and they're still making money um, but there is a distinction, I think, to be made between um, what the industry would describe as a fraud versus a scam. Um, if, if the customer has not authorised the payment and had no play, place in money disappearing from their account, um, the banks would regard that as a fraud and they would make good that customer. When it, what we would term a scam is where the customer has themselves authorised the payment. Someone has done something to trick them into authorising the payment. And so there are some circumstances in which banks would reimburse that, but where customers have actually said, you know, it's a romance scam, for example, I'm sending money to someone who I believe to be, you know, a potential life partner only to find um, that they've been grooming me for three months and I've just sent a lot of money to Nigeria and it's not coming back. Um, you know, I think there's a pretty legitimate question about whether or not a bank is liable for that. Um, then there's the kind of minor ones that we've just talked about, like, you know, pay my toll. Um, again, 
if somebody has answered, you know, clicked through on a URL link in a in a text message um, and made a and authorized a payment, that is, they've actually when you press, you know, pay in your bank account, you are instructing your bank to make that payment. So banks are actually getting much more sophisticated at being able to um, interrupt some of that and come to you and say, we think this is, um, you're being scammed, um, but they can't stop everything. So, you know, some of this is about taking personal responsibility for how careful we are with protecting our passwords, um, you know, thinking twice about the kind of payments that we're making and being really careful about whether or not it's a legitimate organisation that we're paying to. But one of the conversations banks are having at the moment, um, we've worked very hard in Australia to develop a payment system that is very fast, very efficient, lots of innovation, and that now processes um, uh, payments in real time. And many of your listeners will recall, it's not that long ago where when you made a digital payment, um, it would sometimes take three or four days before it got to the recipient. Um, that now happens in real time. And uh, the system, and banks are actually now thinking about and talking to regulators that maybe we need to put more friction back into the system. Mm. Um, maybe we do need to think in some circumstances where it's a, so for example, where it's someone you've never paid before, should that money not, you know, not be processed um, for a, you know, 24 hours, for example, just to give you and the bank time that if you realise, oh, I don't think that was right, um, for them to be able to stop it and, and before it gets into the hands of the scammer. So, you know, there are a lot of things that banks, given how quickly scams are rising, um, banks are looking to do whatever they can to make the system safer. In fact, the amount of money banks are now spending on technology, including software in this space, um, is eight times more than they spend on bricks and mortar branches um, because that's where their customers are and that's where they've got to, that's the space they've got to keep safe. So banks will, where there has been a fraud, where their systems have failed, um, they will reimburse customers. Uh, but where customers have authorised the payment, um, you know, unless there's some other exceptional circumstance, remember the money that banks have is your money. It's the money out of your deposit account. That's the money banks use. So if we had a system where banks used your money to reimburse every customer that had authorised a scam payment, I think we'd end up with some real problems in the system. But what is happening to people is, I mean, it's there's some absolutely heartbreaking experiences that people are having. And I think one of the other issues that's very important to remember or for us to think about and we're talking to government on it, banks... Banks don't know anything about a scam till it comes out of your bank account. Most people get a scam through their phone or through a social media platform, uh, you know, through Instagram, through Facebook, through, um, or they go Googling to look for investment opportunities and they end up, unfortunately, finding a company that's um, very dodgy. So it's actually an ecosystem that scammers are exploiting. Um, we've got to do everything we can to make our um, telecommunication systems more resistant to those kinds of messages so that they don't people don't get them in the first place. We've got to make sure that the social media platforms are not advertising um, investment companies that aren't real, that are fake, um, 
where we can prove that they're fake. Um, and we've got to make sure that bank systems, banks continue to invest in the safety of their system um, and improve their ability to recover funds when a customer does do, uh, makes a mistake and sends it to a scammer. We'll move to sort of the next chapter now um, and we'll have a couple of questions for you for, about home lending. Um, so there's the big R word that's sort of on a lot of people's lips in the next 12 months and that's recession. Um, now we had a recession during COVID um, and in that time we saw that the Reserve Bank um, lent uh, at near zero interest rates $188 billion to banks. Um, the major banks, so Combank, NAB, ANZ and Westpac were the biggest recipients of this $188 billion. Um, and, and this was because there were genuine fears in the market at, at that time that the lending, that credit could collapse during COVID. Now, at near zero interest rates, does this create a sort of moral hazard? Uh, um, uh, Australian banks, especially the big four, are they too big to fail? Um, and how are these banks preparing for the next recession with this context in mind? Um, yeah, there's a lot of lot in that question. Um, I should say in relation, in relation to um, that temporary funding facility, there was a requirement that it be paid back um, yeah. and banks, um, any bank that accessed that money um, at those low rates, which the Reserve Bank at the time with the information they had available thought was important as you said to be funding into the economy, partly because they were very concerned that um, businesses, particularly small businesses, might need um, you know, cash flow support um, as the economy started to collapse potentially. Um, now in the end, you know, a combination of um, government support during COVID, but also um, the support that banks gave their customers. So banks um, gave customers deferrals on their loans, both their housing and their business loans. And I think the combination of those two things really kept um, Australia very strong during that time. Um, that, temp that temporary funding facility, I think, should be seen as a very extreme measure in very extreme circumstances. And banks certainly wouldn't expect to see that um, sort of funding from the RBA in, in anything other than the most extreme cases. And as I said, they are required and to pay it back. And most of them, are, um, there's a there's a repayment plan that's it's well and truly underway. I think they're getting very close to having finished that payback. But then they have to go back and then they have to go back to the market to replace that money. And of course, the market is pricing money at a much higher rate um, than those very, very low rates during those extreme times. Um, so I think it's hard to judge a system on what happens during those really extreme moments. Um, but I should say Australian banks did not access any other support, you know, that none of them needed or accepted or took any money, for example, out of JobKeeper. Um, you know, I think if, we'd, if any of our banks had needed to access JobKeeper, we'd, we would have all been in real trouble. So, you know, it's a good thing um, to have strong banks and the country, uh, we are very, I think, lucky in this country, having watched a couple of significant banks um, fail in the US and in Europe in the last three months. Um, you know, we can, I think, touch wood and thank our lucky stars that we have a strong, well-capitalised, um, well-regulated banking system. But that requires constant vigilance. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, lending in Australia, we have, you know, I said we're, we're, banks are well-regulated. They have, there's quite a lot of 
uh, regulatory requirements about how banks lend and how they make sure before they lend that people can meet their payments um, and uh, and service the loan uh, through both. I mean, through economic cycles. Um, and right now, we're going through a really tough cycle. Just uh, expanding on that a bit, um, Anna, that last point you made, um, to, and just just quickly because we're right, we are running starting to run out of time, I'm afraid. Um, we, we have seen uh, APRA come out with some warnings about banks loosening their serviceability assessments, uh, namely, you know, the the three percent, three hundred basis point uh, buffer. Um, what do you think? Do, are banks making too many exceptions to this rule? Um, I might just explain what the buffer is um, for yeah. some of your listeners. Yeah, <laughs> banks, um, banks are required when they are assessing um, whether or not to give you a loan, they're required to look at your income, look at your expenses and determine if you can meet the repayments. Then they are required to add 3% to the interest rate that they propose to charge you just to see as an exercise if interest rates went up 3%, could you still make those payments? So um, they don't add 3% to your actual loan. They add it to the, you know, the, it's an exercise in working out and calculating your ability to service through the economic cycles that might um, come and go during the time you have the loan. Um, so banks think that the serviceability buffer is actually a really important part of the credit assessment process. Um, they actively support it um, and they, um, they, they use it all the time. Um, there are, however, always some extenuating circumstances, and this is recognised by APRA and their guidance and banks. Um, so, for example, right now, uh, where interest rates have gone to a much higher place than they've been for more than a decade, mm. if banks had a customer that wanted to refinance a loan to a lower interest rate, if banks applied the serviceability buffer strictly in that case, the customer may not meet the requirement. So you end up with this crazy situation where a customer who might be really feeling the pinch can't access a lower interest rate because theoretically they can't service it. The banks are saying in, in very limited circumstances, that is, this is a customer that you've had for a long time, they've never missed a payment, they are a good credit risk. You know them and you know their performance. Um, they are applying for the same loan for the same house at a reduced rate. Um, then there should be some flexibility in the use of the buffer. Um, otherwise, you just end up with a very perverse outcome that, you know, you've in order to protect someone, you've locked them into a higher payment. Um, and I don't think anybody thinks that's a good idea. So there may be a few more of those kinds of circumstances in the current environment. Um, but they need to be applied very prudently, very dil diligently and very carefully. And as I said, banks are not, um, they're only using that flexibility around the buffer in those very tight set of conditions. Um, if you went into a bank as a new customer tomorrow, um, they would apply the serviceability buffer in full to you. Um, and I should say it's not just on mortgages, they're required to do that on um, you know, personal loans, car loans and, and other things. So it's it, it, they value it as a part of the credit assessment because if you're taking out a five-year loan or a 10-year loan or a 30-year mortgage, they know that there's going to be economic ups and downs. Um, there's going to be increases in groceries and petrol and fuel prices and, sorry, um, you know, school fees during the life of that loan. And they want to know that 
not only can you service it at a stretch, um, they don't want you to be totally stretched, I suppose is what I'm saying, because they know there'll be other things that come along and it's a good thing for you and for them in their risk assessment that they know there's a bit of wriggle room there. For sure. And Anna Bly, I'm afraid that's all we have time for on the Savings Tip Jar podcast. Thanks for going through a whole mix of, of a range of questions and answering what we threw at you. Um, and yeah, we appreciate your time once again. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Harrison. Thanks, Don.